But at this point in our service, it's time to put away our phones, and we now have the privilege of hearing from the Word of God. As we draw near to the fall this week, we'll be taking a step back and learning and examining the kind of love that characterizes God and His people. And here to help us with our scripture reading is patience. Today's reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Dan McDonald. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto. And this morning, I want to talk to uh, both Grace West and Grace Downtown about our present moment and where I think we should move forward. Our present moment in COVID is kind of one of those confusing, deflating, we're not sure what we need to do kind of moments for our culture. And I believe for many of us in the church, and it can cause us to lose our bearings. And that's not unusual. You don't have to be in COVID to lose your bearings. I remember in 2015, when we were going through a conciliation process, a number of leaders were together, and we felt like we had kind of lost our way a bit. And our conciliator, our professional sort of counselor who was helping us said, you know, when you lose your perspective, one of the best ways to help you figure out where to go is to ask this question. What's the loving thing to do? And I remember at that moment being caught thinking, that is such a simple, simplistic almost answer. I'm I'm so focused on my training and the theology I learned and all the leadership uh, conferences I went to, etc. That's it? Actually, I think that is it. And I think that's what Paul's trying to say to the Corinthian church, a, a church that has some of the same characteristics in a city that's somewhat similar to ours. A rich, ambitious, affluent city. A rich, ambitious, affluent church but that had lost its bearings. 
And so what Paul wants to say here in this passage, I think we need to hear over and over again, and that is this. The essence of what a church should be is simple. We should be a church filled with love. We should be a people whose outstanding, distinctive characteristic is that we love. Here Paul says three reasons why that should be so. Firstly, love is essential. Secondly, love is beautiful. Thirdly, love is powerful. Let's look at these three. Essential, beautiful, and powerful. Firstly, love is essential. It's the first couple of verses when he talks about if I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have love, not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In these first three verses, Paul is taking an axe to some very typical cultural and Christian church ways of thinking. Christians in Corinth, like Christians today, often rank people. Our culture ranks people all the time. Money, wealth, power, looks, academic reputation, resume. We rank them all the time. Christians do too. We have our own ranking systems often, and in this case, in Corinth, they had their own ranking system. They looked at people and ranked people in the church by their spiritual gifts. What kind of behavior those gifts gave them. So the the Corinthian church valued, as many churches today value, the more public gifts, the more evident gifts, speaking in tongues, speaking words of prophecy, having the ability to move mountains with your faith, having all this knowledge so you could be an expert. The church was valuing people based on the gifts. Just like the culture values people based on abilities or station in life. But Paul wants to annihilate that way of thinking and says the gospel introduces a vastly different, much more beautiful way of thinking. Paul says, if you have this public gifts of speaking, like speaking in tongues or or, or prophecy, if you don't have love, what comes out of your mouth is like a painful sound in the ear. What you produce is nothing. If you have all this knowledge and all this faith and and, and the prophetic ability to know where the church should go, but you don't have love, who you are is nothing. Thirdly, if you're incredibly generous and self-sacrificing, you give all your money away to feed other people, you even give your own body away to be burned. We, pro- we think that probably means martyrdom. Again, very public acts. But you don't have love. He says you gain nothing. Do you hear him? You produce nothing of value. You are nothing of value. You gain nothing of value. Paul just annihilates this whole idea of ranking by gifts. And there's a reason for that. God is the one who measures us. And he is a father. So put yourself in the position of parents. What do parents do when they give their kids gifts? 
Do they want their kids to take their gift, look at other people's gift, and rank and compare? Oh my gosh, that is like the worst thing that parents hate the most when they give kids gifts. What do they want them to do with gifts? They want them to respond in gratitude and joy, and that they want them to take the gift that they've been given and share it with other kids. So to God, our Father, who gives us these gifts, doesn't want us to look around and compare and envy those who have a better gift or, or be puffed up because we have a better gift. No, 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 no. God wants us to gratefully receive the gifts we've been given and then share those gifts in love to make the other children, the other members of God's family happy. Implications. Firstly, don't rank people based on gifts. Be grateful for the gifts you have received. But they're gifts from God, given by Him in grace for you to share with others. Some of us have more quiet, behind-the-scenes gifts. Actually, many of us do. The person with quiet gifts of helping or encouraging or serving, is if they're using those gifts in love, they are way more a delight to their Heavenly Father than a pastor like me who's using a public speaking gift for my own glory. God hates that. I am nothing when I do that. My words are poison. Don't rank people. Instead, realize the preeminence, the centrality, the essentiality of love in Christianity. Jesus was asked, explain the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He said, simple. You shall love the Lord your God, love, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's it. That's the whole of the Old Testament ethic. In fact, that is the great commandment of Jesus to us that really summarizes the whole of the New Testament as well. Without love, you are nothing in God's eyes. Because what God's looking for from his kids is the love that he has poured out on them being poured out back on him and on others. But with love, you're everything. You're his beloved child, acting in ways that reflect his love and give him delight. Love is essential. Secondly, love is beautiful. Love is beautiful. Here, he goes from talking about the preeminence of love, here's my alliteration coming out, sorry, to the particulars of love. He describes love here. The first thing I want to say about this list is it's not exhaustive. It's representative of what love looks like. You can add more elements to it, and other parts of the gospel and the New Testament do do that. It's representative. Secondly, It's kind of similar to another representative but not exhaustive list when Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's another representative list. They sound similar. They overlap. This could be Paul's version of that to this church instead of what he gave to the Ephesian church. It's representative. It overlaps with other lists. But finally, it's helpful. It's a helpful inventory for us who generally walk around thinking we're pretty loving. 
to see how loving we actually are. So let's do that. Let's take inventory. Firstly, love is patient and kind. This means that love deals graciously with other people when there's something in them that makes us want to be ungracious. Love is patient with others. That, that word patience has embedded in it something, some obstacle that you have to overcome to be patient. There's something about the other person that's frustrating or irritating or offense-making. It also says love is kind. The, the, the Greek word literally means to provide a benefit to someone, not as a response. You see a benefit and you provide it. There's an unconditional nature embedded within that word kindness. And that's very different from our culture right now, by the way. Our culture is not generally very patient with people who don't agree with its values, and it's not very kind with people who don't agree. It's punishing. That's why it's getting nicknames like cancel culture. We breathe that air in as Christians. We need to fight for a gospel understanding that love is patient and kind. Secondly, love does not envy or boast. These two words, envy or boast, are words of comparison. You envy those who you think are better. You boast about those who you think are worse. It's, it's, it's a competitive and comparative way of thinking. Love doesn't do that. Love sees people as beautiful in and of themselves just the way they're made. Sec, uh, next, it's not arrogant or rude. Uh, these are words about how we, our behavior. Uh, it's, it, it, it's the, these are words, arrogance is a word of pride on steroids. It's such a boastful, competitive, comparative way of thinking about people that it really demeans them and makes them less than you. Being rude is treating them as less than you, not worthy of politeness or general consideration. It's anti-gospel to be arrogant and rude. It's not the way God wants you to be. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Uh, resentful is close to envy. So we've already sort of talked about that. But to resent someone is to be frustrated that they've got what you think you deserve. These attributes are particularly poignant to me because at different periods of my life, I have valued all three. Insisting on my own way, I've called strength. Being irritable, I've called getting things done. Being resentful, I've called being ambitious. We have words to sanctify and justify these attitudes. But here God calls us to be what Jesus calls meek, to not need to push our own agenda. Love doesn't have to. Love has such a sense of being complete in yourself that you don't need stuff from others. You're free to give to them. And finally, love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is an interesting one, but it shows us something. Love never rejoices at wrong, not even wrong done to your enemies, even if you're justified in having them as your enemies. <laughs> love rejoices with the truth. But now hear this. Love isn't just nice. It's not just, we will tolerate you in whatever you believe. 
Love has objective standards of right and wrong that transcend history, that transcend cultures, because it comes from the transhistorical, transcultural God who knows all and is all wise. Every culture has its blind spots. Every culture has things it's wrong about. And we see that as we look back on other cultures and go, see the blind spot there? See the, see, see the blind spot there? Oh, yeah. Easy to see in hindsight. Love gets its cues from God who has no blind spots as to what is right and wrong and what is true. Now I want to stop and do inventory because the the next phrase, though generally literarily grouped with this as part of the particulars, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, I think is actually a bridge to power because all those things show the power of love. It's not just what it does, it shows its power over obstacles. So let's stop before we make that transition and do inventory just on the list we've done. How are you doing? If you're like me, you're feeling pretty deflated, actually. Patient, kind, not irritable, does not insist on its own way. I, this list creates a growing dissonance in me. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. When I read this at weddings, I, I love to read it because I can see everyone's faces warm up. But then when I point out, are you actually living like this? Their smiles fall. Because as they reflect, they realize they don't live this way. If you're not yet a Christian, ask yourself, can I actually say all these things are true of me? If you're a Christian, ask the same question. Love is essential. Love is beautiful. But I'm going to insert a little one in here. This kind of love is impossible. <laughs> Let's look at those, that, that, those four Because there's a power here, but an impossibility here. And it's that tension you're feeling and I'm feeling that we need to get to. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's so beautiful. It soars to the heights. And when when I read it at weddings, people are just like, you can just see it. How beautiful it is. It's so powerful. So poignant. And so punishing. Why? Well, let, let's, let's look firstly at the list and then explain why it's powerful, poignant, and punishing. Notice a few things about the four. Firstly, bearing and enduring. The, 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 the first and the last, they're synonyms. In the Greek, they're synonyms. They mean something slightly different. To, to bear with something is to bear with something like small that keeps irritating you, that's nagging at you, but you bear with it. My wife for over 20 years, has borne with the fact that I'm a terrible sleeper. I toss, I turn, I partially snore at times. She loves uninterrupted sleep. I am the sleep interrupter par excellence. She is born with that. That's to bear. To, to, to endure is to endure something very profoundly br- tragic. Disease, death, persecution. It's, it's a much heavier, it's a bearing under a heavy, heavy weight. It means something different. But they, they still have synonyms. They mean to endure something hard. Now, the, the middle two words are also very carefully chosen. Believes all things, and that doesn't mean naive belief, and hopes all things. So let's look at belief and hope. What's he saying? He wants you to remember what Paul has said throughout his letters, that he thinks there are three 
primary Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Love believes all things. Love has faith embedded within it. Love hopes all things. You see the three cardinal virtues? Faith, hope, and love, they're all over Paul's letters. He's saying love has them all. That's why it's the most excellent way. He's not saying it believes all things in some like naive, trusting way. No, 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 no. He's pushing this to let your understanding of love soar to such heights that it inspires you, but also haunts you because it's impossible for you to reach. And I ask, that, I, I ask you this to prove it. Put your name, insert your name where it says love here. See how far you get before you feel like you need to stop. Because I think Paul wants you to feel the way I'm feeling. I read this. Dan is patient and kind. Dan doesn't boast. Dan doesn't insist on his own. I had to stop. I can't read through this without feeling terribly convicted that I fall so far short. These words are so beautiful and so powerful and so punishing because they're impossible for me to attain. Yeah, this is the pain and the beauty of the gospel. The pain is you see its beauty, but you cannot attain it. You can't live this way. You can't fill this standard of love. You have to confront the darkness, the selfish, the indifference in your own heart because it's there. You have to be able to say, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because that is true. These words do that in you, wherever you are in your journey of faith. But now, reflect more deeply. Is it true of anybody you know? No. We're all guilty. We all fall short. Wait a minute. Reflect more deeply. Was there ever one who lived this, who could substitute his name for the word love. Yes, love incarnate, love come down. God himself, his name is Jesus. He was patient and kind every day, every moment of his life. He was never rude. He never boasted. He was never arrogant. He never insisted upon his own way. As a matter of fact, when questioned, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life. He actually was the one who presented his body, not to be burned, but to be born up on a cross. While people were hating him, betraying him, spitting on him, abandoning him, he bore it. While he was being nailed to the cross, he endured it on the cross when his father turned his face away from him such that he was able to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore it. He endured it. Why? Hebrews 12 says, for the hope set before him, he hoped all things, he endured the cross. He had faith that his rejection and his death would redeem you and me. He had trust. He believed 
that as the incarnate Son of God, He was sufficient to pay by His life for all the sins of you and me. And He endured that for us. That love, Jesus' love, is the love that 1 Corinthians 13 describes, and it is only His. But it is the love that His Spirit pours into you. Unconditional, infinite, perfect, forgiving, bearing, kind, patient love. Because that's who God is. And it's the love that He gives you the capacity to pour out on others if you're a Christian. So, to wrap it all up, if you're here and you're a skeptic, still investigating the Christian faith, this love is offered to you as a gift. The love of God in Jesus. It's a free gift. That's what gifts are meant to be. Free. But it's His infinite self-sacrificial love that substituted Him for you and allowed Him to bear your guilt and shame. Come to Him. Ask Jesus into your life. Ask God to allow His love to flood into you and His forgiveness to wipe away all the guilt of everything you've ever done wrong and will do wrong. And God will answer that prayer. But if you're a Christian, measure yourself not by your gifts, but by this love. Is this love in you and growing? Secondly, make plans to grow in this love. This week, I encourage you, read 1 Corinthians 13 every morning, first thing, before you do anything else. Let it start to settle into your soul. Let it do inventory with you. Then, after it's begun to do its inventory, ask, who is God putting in my mind that I need to love? Who that I know that I'm struggling with do I need to love? Secondly, what group of people in this church, this faith community, am I struggling to love? Maybe I'm single. I really struggle with people, married people with young kids because I don't know what to do with young kids. And so I avoid them as a class of people. Maybe it's older people because I don't think I have anything in common with them. Maybe older people, you're feeling the same way about singles, like they have so much free time. (laughs) And you're struggling to love them. Make a plan to begin to love them. Maybe it's someone outside your circle of friends, outside your occupational group, outside your ethnographic group. People of another color, people of another ethnicity, people of another background. Maybe you struggle with people of a different financial status. What's the loving thing to do? Make a plan. Make a plan to love the person or persons you know, and then to love the class of people. Begin to break those barriers down. Finally, Make a plan to love your church, to serve your church, to take the gifts that you have. Contact us. It's, it's September is coming. We're, we're, we're thinking through and beginning. We, we've got plans laid to, to, to cautiously start to reopen and re-engage. We need you. Volunteer. Send us your gifts. Let us know how you can help. This past spring, just before COVID hit, 
I was uh, at, a, at a breakfast where these major think tank leaders from North America were talking about how to break the current cultural divide and polarization. I called them the Brooks Brothers because both of their last name were Brooks. One of them I'd been reading for years, David Brooks, but one of them I was meeting for the first time, Arthur C. Brooks, a professor at Harvard, uh, Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School of Government. And we were talking and they were dissecting the polarization, very, very thoughtful, very sophisticated. And then someone asked, you know, how do you get over the divide? And, and one of the Brooks brothers went into a long and sophisticated answer. And the other one, Arthur C. Brooks, who I didn't know, um, what, I was expecting something even longer and more sophisticated. He went, that's simple. Learn to love your neighbor as yourself. And I was struck by the simplicity as I was struck five years ago in the conciliation with the simplicity of his answer. When it's confusing, when we've lost our bearings, ask, how can I be more loving? How can I love my neighbor? If you ask that question, how can I love my neighbor? You will answer the question, how can I delight my God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. And I praise you for this time. And I pray that we would become a church. The Grace Toronto uh, 3.0 or 4.0 or whatever we are, we would be known by this, that we love each other. That our love for each other would be the distinctive characteristic of this faith community now and forevermore. Help us to get there. Help your, by your Spirit fill us. By your grace, forgive us. By looking to Jesus, guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.